Hey listeners, before we get into our episode this week, we wanted to acknowledge the author of the source text these movies were based upon is an unrepentant transphobe. We recognize that some of you will want to skip these episodes for these reasons. We completely understand, and we'll see you on the other side. To everyone in the LGBTQIA community, you are valid and loved. In the meantime, on behalf of The Third One Sucks and Retrograde Orbit Radio as a whole, fuck TERFs, and we say trans rights. Welcome to The Third One Sucks, where we rank every movie in a franchise from first to worst. I'm Dan Ellis. I'm Mark Bell. And what are we going to talk about today, Mark? We are talking about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, a fantasy film directed by Mike Newell. Based on the books by J.K. Rowling, it follows the adventures of Harry Potter, the boy who lived, and his friends Ron Weasley, Hermione Granger, Albus Dumbledore, and the rest of the wizarding world in their battle against the powerful dark wizard, Lord Voldemort. This film stars Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grint, Emma Watson, Robbie Coltrane, Tom Felton, Alan Rickman, Rafe Fiennes, Brendan Gleeson, and Michael Gambone, among a whole bunch of others. It premiered on November 6, 2005 at the Ogden Leicester Square in London and was distributed by Warner Brothers. What is our fan review of the week? Our review this week comes from Hugger1 on Common Sense Media. <laughs> and it says, three stars. Depictions of evil are over the top. <laughs> I was just laughing at the username, Hugger1. <laughs> Hugger1. The very first hugger. Hugger Prime. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I'm vaguely aware of what common sense media is, so I guess this makes sense. But I, I don't know. It seemed pretty straightforward evil to me. It seemed like a good level of evil. I think that the level of evil on display in this movie were pretty, like, baseline they were pretty yeah on the level <laughs> all right should we get into it why i don't see why not mark i don't see why not <laughs> this film opens up unlike the others which have all i think opened or very nearly opened on the dursley family this film opens up on a what we'll find out is a dream a flashback mm-hmm to a man named Frank Bryce being murdered by Lord Voldemort. And very quickly, Harry wakes up and we learn this is a nightmare. And in fact, that he's been having these recurring nightmares for a while. Yes. And it was just nice that the Dursleys weren't there. I was already happy with this movie <laughs> when it started. And I was like, oh, we're not back in the abusive home. That's that that's new and refreshing. I'm sure it's, we're going back uh, there again, but for now, I'm happy they're not anywhere near our sweet little wizard boy. I think this was a good choice the film made. There is some Dursley content in the books, sure. but the event of this summer in the wizarding world is the 422nd International Quidditch World Cup. Mm. And Harry has gotten permission I said that, and I suddenly can't remember if he got permission or just left. But at any rate, he is attending the World Cup with the Weasley family and also nice. his friend Hermione. So yes. immediately, instead of joining up with the Dursleys, we start this film off with Ron and Hermione. Way better. Yes, the found family is much better than the actual family. Yes. <laughs> and we also get a little bit more of the extended Weasley clan in this flick, which mm -hmm. I like a lot. I've got a real soft spot 
for the Weasleys as far as this universe goes. Yeah, I think in a more just universe, uh, we would focus a little more around them and, uh, you know, commentary on class struggle uh, with the Weasleys rather than bloodlines through Harry Potter's yes. point of view. <laughs> but I would much prefer those movies, but this is what we got, and here we are. <laughs> so... The movie doesn't waste a lot of time, and probably rightly so, in taking us to the Quidditch World Cup. They travel via port key, which you may remember is like a magical portal device within the wizard world. Often it's in the shape of like a boot or a tin can or something like that to disguise it from the muggles. Okay. And they travel via port key explicitly because until a later age... The kids aren't allowed to teleport themselves. Wizards are capable of teleporting, but the kids aren't yet. And port keys are still kind of a common means of travel anyway. And they've been apparently spread out kind of all over the world in advance of the Quidditch World Cup. And the Quidditch World Cup, both in the context of the book and especially in the movie, I really enjoy because it does give us at least a very brief look at the wizarding world beyond London and beyond a very small school tucked up in the hills of England. Yeah, uh, we get out into the countryside at least for a bit. We meet, I want to see the Diggersbees because I've been playing Pokemon. Uh, we meet the Diggeries, <laughs> the Diggeries, yes. Cedric Diggory, Diggory. That's right. <laughs> and we see... I don't think we really get to interact with too many of the other countries, but we at least see evidence that there are magic users kind of worldwide. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, all of the important events in the universe right now are focused on the very white wizards. But hey. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So the World Cup is fun. Ireland, I believe, beats Bulgaria. In the match they get to watch. But the real significant event is. And I swear to you, this is a real thing. And I think the phrase has come up in the in the books and or movies before the dark mark. Dark mark. (laughs) If that's not your evil twin. (laughs) I think following the Mario naming convention, my evil twin is just Wark. Mark, yes. (laughs) So the dark mark is a, like a bad guy bat signal. Okay. That some Death Eaters have kind of fired off here in the World Cup. So the dark mark is a sigil that is shot into the sky for Lord Voldemort to call his followers to him. And the explanation that the movie universe gives us is... These are just some screwball kids, right? Messing around, causing trouble. Okay. Because within the context of the universe, the governing body of the wizards is going to resist acknowledging the returning rise of fascism as long as it possibly can. Uh, Sure. (laughs) Those aren't uncomfortable real-world parallels. It really is. Less so in the era in which these books were written. I mean, not that it wasn't happening then, it just wasn't as visible, but boy, in the world we live in now, it's a real giant bummer. Yeah, it's a bummer. And then (laughs) when the death, uh, what what do you you call these fuckers? Deathbringers? Is that what you called them? 
Death Eaters. Death actually. Eaters. They eat death. <laughs> they sure do. <laughs> they got a hankering for some dead shit. No, they pop up and I'm like, this is the clan. The clan's here. Who invited the clan? Yes. <laughs> there are very intentional, I think, socio-political overtones to the Death Eaters. Very clumsy at times, obviously. But this, oh listener, oh listener, this is still in the era where we thought J.K. Rowling was a progressive. Mm. Like, oh, look at this. You know, these are kids' books, and she's working in some anti-fascist stuff and some anti-race. Oh, oh boy. (laughs) And I know we've got a disclaimer at the front of this episode, and I don't want to waste too much time talking about how much of a bummer that woman is now. But every time I bump into something that 15 years ago I thought, like, hey, good for you, JK. Look at you putting in a little bit of interesting stuff. It just makes me sad now. Yeah, I mean, and it's throughout this whole movie where, like, (laughs) the one Asian part, the character's name is Cho, and they have, like, three lines. Yep. So, after the Quidditch Cup, we sort of fast forward right to school. There's a few key things going on this year. The books and the movies generally open with Headmaster Dumbledore giving a welcome back speech where he updates the kids on what's happening this year slash explains the upcoming plot of the book to the reader or watcher. Right. He exposits everything up front. He does. (laughs) It's a very expository welcome back to school. So anything that he says in these speeches, you know, is going to be important later in the books. So he says, number one, there's a new defense against the dark arts teacher because we can't hang on to those guys to save our lives. No, no, we, yeah, no, can't do that. (laughs) So this one is a fella named Mad-Eye Moody, Mm -hmm. who is just a real cartoon character. (laughs) Here's the thing about this. I knew where this movie was going with Mad-Eye Moody, because we've done this three times now prior to this. (laughs) Uh, But despite myself, I liked the character throughout even though uh, we come to find out it's not the character that we thought it was, and it was a waste of yet another great actor. Um, No, don't worry. Not only do I agree with you on that, I love Mm Mad-Eye. Actual Mad-Eye Moody is not dead and will show up in later books and movies. Yes, good. So it's okay that you like this guy because he's coming back. Awesome. All right, so Mad-Eye Moody's in charge of the defense against the dark arts. He is an eccentric fella who was well-known for being a... Uh, an auror? Yeah, I suddenly couldn't remember the word. A wizard cop, an auror. Wizard, wizard cops? Oh, don't, you're recontextualizing him in a way that makes me like him less. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and he also fought in the first go-round of the Voldemort Wars. The Great War. It was so great they wouldn't need another one. (laughs) He was a prosecutor, kind of. He was responsible for sending a lot of folks to that horrifying wizard prison, and it has made him a bit paranoid about his personal security and the general security of the wizarding world. He's an interesting guy. We'll get into him more later. Hmm. The other big plot thing that's happening 
is something called the Triwizard Tournament, which is, as Dumbledore explains to us, a semi-recurring contest that used to be held between the three largest European wizarding schools, which is Hogwarts, uh, Durmstrang of Russia, or Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. and uh, Bobatons of France. And these three schools used to do this Triwizard Tournament, I don't remember how frequently, but pretty regularly, and they suspended it in the late 1700s because people kept dying. <laughs> Which is a good reason to stop doing a sports thing. Yes. <laughs> and also probably accurate with the general uh, approach that perhaps humanity may have taken to it. Like, ah, yeah, whatever, some kids die. And then as as time passes and we start to realize that's maybe not the best idea. Like, Oh, maybe we should stop doing this thing that we've been doing for 500 years. Cause kids are dying. The terrorists win. If you do that, Mark, we have to have <laughs> little league. Yes. We must have peewee football. Yes. <laughs> Concussions right. are actually just opportunities to become a better person. <laughs> so this year, which I believe in, Timeline in universe timeline is 1994. Whoa. Hogwarts has decided to reinstitute the Triwizard Tournament, or rather, I guess all three schools have. Okay. But they've put in some new special safety rules and very significantly have agreed that the participants have to be at least 17, which is the age of majority within the wizarding world. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly a choice. Yeah. I guess it's okay if you kill people if they're technically adults, which is the same principle that I believe the U.S. military uses. Yeah, thank you. I didn't have to say it because you already did. (laughs) Okay, all right. So that's very exciting. Of course, all the kids are excited about it because they are children who have not seen death, most of them. So the idea that something might possibly cause their death, it's not a thing to worry about. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of like school that happens here, <laughs> but increasingly in the movies, especially we don't really get to see much of school. The books mm-hmm. take more time. So it really still is at least up until the sixth book. It really still is a school year as the framing device for the narrative, okay. but the films that becomes less and less. So I think. And I think you really start to feel it in this one. Is this just J.K. Rowling's high fantasy, uh, like, high school AU? Is that really all this was? Initially, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, the next big plot thing we're going to get to is the Goblet of Fire, which is the sort of historical device that chooses the Triwizard Champions from each of the three schools. And so it's going to hang out for a little while, and anyone who is interested in being a contestant can write their name on a slip of paper and put it into the goblet. Mm-hmm. If you are not over seven, or if you're not 17 or over, the goblet will not accept. Yes, it's magic. It, <laughs> it, it zaps you, and your, your rapid aging potion that you took because you're two twin Weasley brothers, your, your two <laughs> right? falls 
will shoot you across the room and you will fight his old man on the floor. <laughs> That's what happens if you try to cheat the system. <laughs> and sort of in and around this, the students from Bobatons and Durmstrang show up. So there's like a contingent. Basically, each school has chosen a dozen or so of its most likely champions, and they have come to Hogwarts for an indefinite amount of time to participate in the Triwizard Tournament. They're effectively sort of uh, transfer students for the year. Seems to be the case, yes. There's a little bit of time where everyone can put their name in. The Goblet selects Fleur Delacour, Victor Crumb, <laughs> and Cedric Diggory. Hey, you may remember Diggory. We met them earlier. Yes, we also met Crumb earlier. We did. That's true. Yeah. Diggory notably being played by Robert Pattinson, who I probably should have put up in the top in my starring. That is one of two that are starring in this film that are not mentioned up top that I noticed. <laughs> there are a bunch of names in this movie. <laughs> there are, but one of them is a Time Lord, and I'm upset that he was not mentioned. <laughs> Shh, that's a secret. Oh, shit. Okay. It's not really a secret it's at not, all. He's in the very beginning of the movie. Like yeah. He's like the second he's person right you see front. in this entire movie. <laughs> so, Victor Crumb is already somewhat famous within the wizarding world because he's an up-and-coming Quidditch player who was participating in the World Cup. He's a big deal. <laughs> Supposedly Fleur... the fastest seeker in the world? Yes. Fleur Delacour belongs to Bobatons, which is like an all-girls French boarding magic school? Something to that effect. And the other school seems to be an all-boys school. It's like... Right. <laughs> it, it was certainly a choice. And then whenever they introduced uh, French lady like prep school, like it's literally just an opportunity for the camera to ogle a bunch of teenage girls' asses while yep. like teenage boys are also ogling said teenage girls' asses. And it was uncomfortable yep. as a full-grown man. It sure was. I, I glossed over it when I was talking about Bobatons. I should specify, I believe in the world of both the books and the movies, they are both mixed gender schools. It's just they each only send one gender to represent them at the cup for some inexplicable reason. That's certainly a choice. That's certainly a choice. The famed alchemist Nicholas Flamel is a graduate of Bobatons, if I remember correctly. Ah, okay. <laughs> and then, after these three are chosen, the goblet spits out a fourth name. Unsurprisingly, it is our very special magic boy, Harry Potter, because yes. otherwise <laughs> this movie should have been called Cedric Diggory in the Goblet of Fire. Yes, or Rupert Grint in the Goblet of Fire. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Man, I will say, I really feel like Ron steals the show in a lot of this movie. He doesn't have a ton to do, but when he is on screen, he is really entertaining in this film. Ron, in this movie, acts the most like a shitty teen. And, yes. And for my money, that means he's doing his job properly. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's a lot of necessary being a grown-up from Harry, and Hermione has been trying to be a grown-up since childhood, it seems. 
Ron is the one in this book who does just get to be a teenager. Okay, so obviously Harry being picked is a big deal. One, because how do you have a tri-wizard tournament with four wizards? You've yes. ruined the naming convention. That's a quad. You Thank you. That's a quad wizard <laughs> tournament. Get your shit together. Two, because he's underage. Yes. And three, because now Hogwarts has two potential champions. Yep, they sure do. So there's a big discussion amongst the teachers. Mad-Eye Moody shows up and somehow validates that Harry did not cheat to get his name in there. I, there's just a lot of crosstalk between all the adults in the room <laughs> at that point. It's just like, yes. bring in all the adults so they can yell about how somebody's cheating and that they shouldn't have done the thing. And of course this stupid kid did this thing because he's a stupid kid. Yes. But they I, do say, that's right, Harry didn't put his name in there. <laughs> and And everyone among the adults at least, seems to accept that. The children remain suspicious. I know that at some point it ends with the adults, with McGonagall and Snape both being like, he, he can't do the thing. I'm the, I'm the mom and he can't do the thing. And Snape being Snape is like, but what if he do the thing? <laughs> right. And Dumbledore's like, I also don't really care about the well-being of children. What if he did do the thing? The magical government boss, Barty Crouch, <laughs> okay. Who is here to oversee the Triwizard Tournament? Mm-hmm. Informs everyone that it doesn't matter what Harry's magic school mom or magic school bully think, that the Goblet of Fire is a binding magical contract, and Harry cannot remove himself from competition. For reasons. They never really give us a reason why he couldn't, other than just to say, but it's a contract. Right. Well, that's a very governmental approach to things. Yeah, it's like, it's a very legalist approach. It's like they're standing at a crosswalk and, like, there's no traffic. <laughs> the thing says stop. And it's like, no, you have to stop. Okay, but, like, I could, but, like, there's nothing that could go. No, you don't understand. Jaywalking is illegal. And Harry, of course... He's into it. I mean, you know, he's protesting or whatever, but he definitely wants to do this thing. I guess. Harry is just... Harry just seems like along for the ride for most of this movie. He's just like... It's true. Yeah, oh, I guess I'm doing the thing. I guess I'm doing the... Th I guess I have to be the protagonist again. <laughs> so a story I can happen. I do think there was a minute early in this movie where Harry got to spend a chunk of the summer with the Weasleys instead of with the Dursleys. And then Harry came to school and this cool thing was going to happen. And I do think there's a moment where Harry is just like, ha, finally the life I wanted, right? Hmm. I've been out from under the thumb of my family and I'm just chilling out with my friends. I'm yeah. going to the magical soccer game. I'm going to get to watch this cool thing happen at school. Mm -hmm. It's the fourth year. This is going to be a good time. And now this is thrust on him again. And maybe there is a bit of Harry that's just fine i guess this is happening that, that was my interpretation i'm also happy that we're not wasting half of this movie on quidditch <laughs> i know the fan base has a thing for it but i can't stand quidditch it's the most boring part of these movies to me yeah it's despite opening on the world cup quidditch is pretty well relegated in this film 
Yeah, Quidditch happened so the clan could show up and stop it. I don't really understand what was going on there at the beginning, really. I, I honestly don't. I just know that they went to a soccer game and suddenly the clan showed up. So most of the school thinks Harry somehow sneaked and snooked his way around the rules here. Mm-hmm. Specifically, Ron, who is very angry at Harry, not for participating, but for not sharing the secret with Ron. Ah. And I think that's a fairly valid emotion, especially in a teenager, because Ron's Mm -hmm. upset, I think in part because Harry gets to be the special boy again, but truthfully Ron's upset because he thinks Harry did this and Harry's lying to him, and he's supposed to be the one guy who's on the inside. Right. You know, Harry can do whatever he has to to kind of get by with the rest of the world, but Ron's his pal, And he's annoyed and I think disappointed and hurt that Harry is betraying him. Of course, we, the viewer, know that he's not, but I still find that to be a pretty valid emotional reaction from Ron. Is it over the top? Sure. Does it go on longer than it needs to? Absolutely. But whatever. And I think they could have contextualized it better and it wouldn't have felt like it went over the top or on too long if they had done that properly. Agreed. But they didn't, so we have what we have. (laughs) (laughs) The rest of this movie, that's all set up. And it probably takes a good half an hour to get through. And the rest of this movie is just effectively the three tasks of the Triwizard Tournament, briefly interrupted by a Christmas dance. Yes. And I don't say that negatively, necessarily, but rather to illustrate the point that this is really the Triwizard Tournament movie happening at school. There's not a whole lot of school going on. There's bits and pieces, and we still see some of the other characters, and there's a class or two. We see a little of Snape. We get to see a little Moody in action. Mm-hmm. But the driving narrative really is this tournament. And the first assigned task is to steal a golden egg from a dragon. That's just dragons right up front. They sure did just put dragons right up front. Yeah, <laughs> they did. And Harry knows about this because I think Hagrid tipped him off, right? Yes, Hagrid told Ron to tell Harry, but then Ron made up a story about five other people knowing before Ron knew. Right. So that he could tell Hermione to tell Harry that Ron (laughs) heard from those five other people on the way up the chain, which has my favorite line from this entire movie of like, Hermione just fed up and walking away and turning around and going, I'm not an owl. It is good. And I do appreciate that Ron, even in his deepest moment of anger, you know, he doesn't want to see Harry get hurt and he still wants Harry to win. He's still going to make sure that info gets to Harry. Mm-hmm. He's just grumpy about it. Yeah, he's like, I guess I'll help my best friend not die. I'm fine. I know we're having. <laughs> you won't give me back my copy of Mortal Kombat 3. It's fine. <laughs> and much to Harry's credit as well. Harry fills Cedric in so that he's Mm -hmm. not the only one with this kind of advantage. Sure. They both succeed. I I think all four champions succeed in capturing their egg. Yeah, everybody gets their egg. Uh, We have some moments interspersed before this where this horrible, like, uh, reporter lady. Oh, yeah. I completely forgot she was in this movie, and I suddenly can't remember her name. She works for the Quibbler. The Quibbler. It doesn't matter. She's really just there to be, a, I guess, a stodgy old white lady who 
<laughs> lies willing wantonly in her report like i don't know it feels weird in this political age that we're in that it's just like media person bad let me help you with this because while we in america have an ugly and inefficient and arguably at times seditious press corps absolutely keep in mind that the brits are home to world-class tabloids it's what they do all the time. I don't, I don't know how aware you are of this, but the British tabloids are insane. And this character is very much a parody of the British tabloid. So this character reads directly to a British reader. It's almost like everything isn't for Americans. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they get the eggs and they are told, hey, you're going to have a while before the next task. There's only three of these and they occur over the course of nine months. But the egg that you have stolen from the dragon contains within it a clue to the next task. Mm-hmm. Harry, while a very brave boy, is also not always the brightest boy and is sort of ridiculously bad at puzzles. He seems to be real bad at puzzling. <laughs> so this egg is going to frustrate Harry for a while, and then eventually he's just going to forget about it. Rita Skeeter. Her name's Rita Skeeter. That's the name of the reporter for the Quibbler. That's a whole ass name. Okay. (laughs) All right. I feel better now that my brain has put that piece of information back where it belongs. I shouldn't be as shocked that that's her name in a world where (laughs) names like, you know, McGonagall and Voldemort and Rupert Grint exist. So somewhere on the back end of this task, Harry and Ron make up. I don't really remember the driving factor beyond Ron just sort of realizing like, oh, it would have in fact been very stupid of Harry to do this. Perhaps I should reconsider. I don't know that I agree with Ron on that front. Again, Harry has been known to do some stupid things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're teenagers. They make some dumb choices. (laughs) They do. Either way, they're friends. And that's good because now everyone's got to get ready for the upcoming Yule Ball. They do their uh, their little school dance thing now. I guess they're kind of in junior high-ish age. Yeah, so, yeah like, they are either junior high or very early high school at this point. Yeah, they are like ninth grade-ish, I assume. Yeah, all of this sort of social anxiety around who is taking who to the dance mm-hmm. is something that even as a grown-up, still vibes very directly with me. I didn't even go to school dances, but this sort of like teenagers worried about who they're taking to the dance as if it is the end of the world mm-hmm. is a very real emotion. And the older you get, I think the harder it is to remember how passionately you feel emotions as a teenager. Everything is it's just dialed all the way up. Like, I still get a little bit of that just because of how I'm wired, but not sure. teenager <laughs> levels. Not te- Teenager levels are still double of what I deal with. And it's a thing I try to remember, because I think that's a big part of what leads adults to look back at teenagers so grumpily, mm-hmm. is because you forget how much everything feels like the world is riding on it. Every decision you're making, every mm-hmm. decision made for you, everything feels like the world's going to end tomorrow. Yes. It's, I mean, especially in 2005, whenever this movie came out. <laughs> yes, indeed. To quote the Sage of Our Times, horse ebooks from Twitter, everything happens <laughs> so much. 
Yes. That's pretty much being a teenager. It's just everything <laughs> is the most important it has ever been all the time. All right. So the Christmas dance happens. It is a big deal for the kids. I think it sort of serves as a timeline anchor point for the movie. Harry continues to have these sort of dream nightmare vision things uh, where he is re-experiencing the death of Frank Bryce. And as the next task is approaching, Cedric, returning the favor from when Harry warned him about the dragons, tells Harry how to open up the egg. Mm-hmm. Or cryptically gives Harry a clue about how to open up the egg. I want to stop you just for a second. I want to spend a little more time on this dance that happens middle of this movie. Almost dead in the middle of this movie. A few things. It feels very much like a school dance. I think they did a good job kind of capturing that atmosphere and the shitty, like, begrudging, dude, I don't want to dance, we're just going to sit at this table the whole, whole time thing. Mm, yes. Uh, that thing I think they capture really well. A couple bad points. Yes. Um... This whole deal with uh, Ron and his clothing mm, uh, mm-hmm. was one of those writing on the wall moments for me. Whenever he got it and he's like, this is a dress. Like, I can't wear a dress. Yes. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I had the same reaction in context mm-hmm. and didn't write it down. Because initially, and again, up until very recently, that was a common joke for media to make. Like, ha ha, it's funny, we put a guy in a lady's clothes. Ha 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 ha. That joke exists in a ton of media. Like, I get it. Yeah, media still does that. It's just not, it's it's, it's just not funny. Probably was never funny. We just know better now. Yes, accurate, yeah. The voices that have been complaining about this all along now have a bigger platform in which to voice their complaints. Yes. At the time... You could take it on good faith that like, oh, a 14-year-old boy is complaining about wearing a dumb-looking robe. Okay. Sure. In the context of what we now know, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. (laughs) So perhaps this is just another good time for us to say, hey, trans rights. Trans rights. (laughs) On top of this, uh, there's a few more things about this dance. One, we already kind of see this like in this movie. Uh, these last two movies especially, but even more so in this one, this kind of dynamic at play between Ron and Hermione, where like it's very clear that there's a thing happening there. Mm, yes. We just never see it happen on screen, but clearly there's like some amount of attraction there on both sides. Yeah, and I think the actors sell that fairly well. Like the moment where like she's like storming off and they have had a conversation in between the montage cut that we get from them sitting there to them walking out of the dance. Right. Like very clearly there's been a conversation between them two where they had like the little <laughs> fight and I was like, Oh, that felt real. That was that was a nice yes. little moment of reality in these movies about wizards for children. <laughs> On the opposite side of that coin, this band at this dance <laughs> Oh my god, this song was horrible, Mark. It's so bad. It was so... <laughs> it's so bad. Tremi- like, unbelievably bad. <laughs> like, I couldn't quite wrap my mind around how bad what was happening on screen was. <laughs> um, I don't know if the scriptwriters did that. I don't know if the band on the day did that. I don't know. I don't know who wrote that. But they need to reconsider, maybe, that this is not the best use of their talents. Uh, Maybe they could take those talents elsewhere. 
<laughs> that is memory serving the weird sisters is the name of that band weird in universe sisters. okay put your ogre hands in the air like you just don't care what the <laughs> fuck are you doing what is this <laughs> yeah it yeah was... it's very odd it was so i keep harping on it because i don't know how to contextualize how bad it was listener I just wanted to bring those few things up. Uh, the acting was good. The relationships were believable. Yep. Uh, they didn't treat the Brown characters in this moment very well at all. Yep. Although credit to those actors, I think. Yeah. I can't remember the the names of the actors who played uh, Pavarti and Padma, but I think they were both very authentic. They had very little to work with, but they brought right. what they could to it. Yeah, they. That that's my problem there. Is like I want to give them that credit, but also... My sample size is so small. (laughs) (laughs) They did the best with what they were given. It's just that they were given crumbs. Yes. Victor crumbs. Yes, Victor crumbs. So please continue on with this movie's plot. All right. So Harry takes a bath and opens his second egg. Yes, egg bath time. I don't know why Cedric felt the need to be so cryptic. He's like, I think you should think about it in the bath. Yeah. There's a slightly nearby universe where that is the opening line to a beautiful relationship between these two characters oh man my weeb ass went karu and shinji they're gonna go take a bath together and everything's gonna be fine (laughs) and then in the third act uh harry's gonna have to crush cedric's head (laughs) basically what harry learns is that the second task is going to involve uh, rescuing something from under a lake underwater he needs to be able to breathe underwater yes and moaning myrtle is there to help Harry has to get Gillyweed. Lucky for him, Neville happens to be very, very good at herbology. Mm-hmm. And Neville is able to acquire some. Great, no problem. The next task is terrifying. And look, I get it. Safety measures were put in place or whatever. Mm-hmm. But everything about this triggers a lot of anxiety for me. This scene is very uncomfortable for me. Turns out there's an element to this plan an element to this task that was not planned, uh, which are a school of underwater monsters called Grindylows. So the Grindylows, apparently that's what they're called. Mm -hmm. Uh, These underwater gremlins, those are not planned by the school because they do explicitly tell him only take one. That tells me they know this whole setup that they're only supposed to rescue one person. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that is accurate. They are they are absolutely only supposed to rescue one person. I may just be misremembering it because there's something in the books that went wrong. Like the kids were not actually supposed to be in danger. Oh no, it's just that they didn't it's just that they didn't tell the kids. That's what it was. Gotcha. So the three never were in danger, but Harry didn't know that. He thought Fleur Delacour's little sister was in mortal peril. Sure. And so he risked his own life to save her. Of course. Which is, you know, a cool move. Good for you, Harry. That was basic human decency. Yeah, but because the grown-ups never told any of these children that their friends and family were not going to die, <laughs> Harry unnecessarily risked his own life to rescue Fleur's little sister. Yes. All right. <laughs> and somebody <laughs> right. saves Harry? Who saves Harry? Do we ever get that answered in this movie? That seemed nebulous to me. I believe, and again, it's been a while, I believe it was uh, Hagrid in the book. Haggard in the book. Okay. Because in this, it just seems like they get hit by a wave of something, and then we never see who did the something, or told who did the something. (laughs) 
Yeah, listeners can write in. Someone someone can let us know. I'm sure I got that wrong. Okay, so Harry gets bonus special boy points because he saved Gabrielle, who is Fleur's little sister. He saved Ron, which was the person that was trapped for him to rescue. Also down there, it turns out, was Hermione. Mm-hmm. Because she's very special to Victor. Apparently. <laughs> Okay, so a few weird plot things happen, and I got a little short with my notes here. If there's any fleshing out that you think needs done, let me know. Okay. Because, one, we're going to find the body of Barty Crouch Sr., who you may remember as Mr. Government from earlier in this movie. We're going to find his dead body in the woods. (laughs) Yep, he wanders off, and then he gets murdered, presumably by his child? Yep, I believe that is the later implication, absolutely. And shortly after that, Harry is going to stumble into Dumbledore's office. I think he's in there, Dumbledore leaves, and Harry finds a device called a pensive. Okay. Which is going to recur in future books. And it is it is just a scrying pool. That is all it is. It's a scrying pool in which a wizard can store their own memories. And Harry, being a little bit of a snoop, watches one of Dumbledore's memories. Yes, this seems to be on purpose. It seems to be like Dumbledore wanted this to happen. Because he walks out of the room and he's like, they're very sharp today, those living candies that we eat, I guess. (laughs) That's fucked up. But And then I guess he planned for Harry to stumble back into it and open it up. I don't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I believe we're supposed to infer that Dumbledore wanted that to happen. Yeah, there's some, not on this scene specifically, but there's some kind of soft retconning later where Dumbledore would explain that he was trying to sort of guide Harry through specific things, but Mm -hmm. for reasons couldn't, like, tell him everything. Right. It's whatever. (laughs) Anyway, Harry sees a memory of a trial, basically, right? So this Mm -hmm. is... While the Ministry of Magic is trying to hunt down the Death Eaters after Voldemort has been defeated. And one of the known Death Eaters, while on trial, fingers Severus Snape as being a Death Eater. The person that they're trying to send back to Azkaban and not let off is the Russian man that came with the not Russian, but definitely Eastern European, apparently, school. (laughs) Igor Karkarov. Mm -hmm. Karkaraj. Yeah. (laughs) Karkaraj. So, this is significant for a handful of reasons. It's playing into Harry's distrust of Snape, which is a theme that runs through all of these books. Mm -hmm. We've talked earlier, and we don't need to revisit why Snape is a bad adult for the way he treats Harry. But it plays into that, and Dumbledore is personally vouching for Snape's innocence, saying, no, he he was a spy, basically, right? Like, yeah. he was a Death Eater, but he repented, and then he was working for us as a spy. Yes, even though we were told explicitly earlier in the film, nobody stops being a Death Eater. 
We're right. now supposed to turn around and believe two people were Death Eaters, but are no longer Death Eaters. <laughs> yes. And that'll be an argument that Harry's going to use across the next three books. Okay. He's going to continue to insist that nobody stops being a Death Eater. Snape is just a double agent or a triple agent or whatever mm-hmm. it would be at that point. Okay. But Karkarov also names Barty Crouch Jr. Mm-hmm. the son of Mr. Government. Yep, who gets up and tries to leave. This is uh, the wonderful David Tennant. Yeah, looking slightly younger than we may remember him. Yes, younger than uh, we see him at the beginning of this movie. (laughs) And Harry connects some dots that who he now knows to be Barty Crouch Jr. is a figure that's been uh, recurring in at least a couple of his dreams. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, all of that, again, the pensive is going to be used many times throughout the course of the these books to just sort of fill in backstory, which I guess is fine. It's a literal exposition machine. Yes. All right, time for the third task, which is just a maze. Of course it is. It's a wonderful classic fantasy literature trope, right? It, it's a maze with a prize at the center. Mm-hmm. First one to the cup wins. I think the time you get to go into the maze is dependent on how well you've performed with the other tasks. Yes, that seems to be the case. Since they currently, Harry and Cedric are tied, they both get to go in at the same time. And then it works down from there. Fleur and Victor both get uh, incapacitated by various challenges within the maze. Harry and Cedric get to the cup at the same time largely because they teamed up in what is kind of a sweet moment, I think. Yeah, it's a nice little moment, and Harry turns back to help Diggory. I keep wanting to say Diggersby. Um, yep. <laughs> the, the, this whole maze thing didn't land for me. It felt very anticlimactic for these games. Sure. I know the actual climax comes after they get the cup, but right. just within the context of these games, like... That maze, yeah, like, that seems hard, but... It does seem like a step down, yeah. But yeah, an hour underwater and dragons seem way more intimidating <laughs> than go through this hedge mage. What's wrong with this hedge mage? Sometimes shit gets spooky. Sometimes it's a real yeah. spooky hedge mage. That's, <laughs> that's all that it really does. Sometimes it wraps you up and pulls you in. Right. Apparently it doesn't kill you because the floor, again, was fine at the end of the movie. I don't know what the actual threat is there because a dragon could kill you and you could drown to death in the others. <laughs> anyway. So Cedric Cedric and Harry get to the cup at the same time. They each grab one of its, what are those things called? Arms? Wings? Handles? Handles? Cup handle? Hand- those are handles, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Wings, you know. Color famously known for having wings. Cup wings. You know, one of those things called where you can you grasp them. The, yeah, when you, know, you the drink thing them. designed for you to hold oh, with your cup hand. The, the hand thing. Uh, it, I can't even call okay. them hand things. Go on. Yeah. It turns out that the Goblet of Fire is a port key. Mm-hmm. which you may remember from the beginning of the movie is a device that could be enchanted to teleport a wizard from one spot to another. So Herrick and uh, Herrick. <laughs> That's the ship name. <laughs> That's our ship name. So Harry and Cedric are teleported to 
a graveyard? Yeah, the grave right? where Tom Riddle is buried. Oh, that's right. That's right. It is Tom Riddle's grave. And waiting for them there are Voldemort himself, kind of finally making his proper entrance into this franchise. As a weird man baby. Yep. With no nose. Yep. And Peter Pettigrew, mm-hmm. who is still clinging to the hem of Voldemort's garment in a desperate attempt to survive. So they have a spell. It's one of the, like, the three spells you're not supposed to ever use, or you're going straight to Azkaban. Yeah, the unforgivable curses. The three unforgivable laws of alchemy. They, right. um, <laughs> they just straight up merc Cedric Diggory. Like, just straight up, just fast and quick. No, not messy, nothing. Just, he's, he's dead. Yep. This one specifically is the killing curse. Yeah. The incantation for which is Avada Kedavra, which is a real bummer. Yeah, it just sounds like Abracadabra. It sure does. Uh, (laughs) And I think there's supposed to be a cadaver joke in the back end there, but it doesn't really come through. I was going to say that. (laughs) We get, as your notes so delicately put it, we get Dedrick. Yeah. Man, poor Cedric deserved better. Cedric's dead. Yeah, ganked by stupid Peter Pettigrew. Yep, and Harry is just restrained so that Pettigrew can cut some blood from him. Like, they say, like, bone from the father unwillingly or something. That's supposed to be, like, Tom Riddle's dad or Tom Riddle. I do not remember. I'm sure it's in there, but I do not remember. Where'd you get this whole-ass femur, rat dad? So he drops that into this Voldy stew. Oh, that's, I think that's why they're in the graveyard. I think that's where the femur came from. I mean, one assumes, but still, who's femur? (laughs) There's no open grave that we can see. Uh, So they drop that in, and then he cuts off his hand for Voldemort. uh, Drops that in the stew. Yep. Baby, you got stew going. (laughs) Slits Harry's wrist. And yep. drops blood into the stew. And so now we get like this like rebirth moment uh, that's a little gross, but pretty cool. Of, uh, yeah, Voldemort it works pretty well, I think. Kind of reconstituting their self as a living being. Yeah, a full-size grown-up with no nose. Yeah, a whole-ass man. And then the Death Eaters show up. And he just starts killing the Death Eaters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's wild. He kills a bunch of the Death Eaters, except for, like, maybe some background ones and Lucius Malfoy. Because they all abandoned him. Yeah, shocker, Lucius Malfoy is a Death Eater. Nobody is surprised. Yeah. Which I don't think Harry ever passes that information on in this movie. I don't think there's a moment afterward where he's like, oh, by the way, Lucius is, like, all all (laughs) up in Voldemort's business. In the book, he does tell Dumbledore, I think, pretty quickly. Okay. That would would make more sense. (laughs) At this point, why don't you just mark Harry with your special spell while he's tied up? Why do you have to go Bond villain? He's got to go challenge him to a duel, a wizard's duel. A wizard duel. Um, <laughs> so please t- pick up with the wizard duel, Mark. Sure. So Voldemort attempts the killing curse. Mm-hmm. Harry, being fairly limited in his, you know, combat repartee, being a child who is mm-hmm. still in school, Uses Expelliarmus, which is his go-to. Sure. And the spells slam into each other. And even though Harry's spell is much weaker than Voldemort's, 
the like the beams of magic mm-hmm. wrap around each other. There's some kind of like haptic feedback, and Voldemort's wand starts spitting out a bunch of souls. Mm-hmm. Presumably, just a bunch of souls that he has killed or been a party to killing. That is correct. Yeah. So what we will later learn is that Harry's wand and Voldemort's wand are twinned. Mm-hmm. They mentioned that so they in are... the first movie, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. So we learned it early, and then it pays off here. They are made from... A bigger, the thicker same... wand. Right. <laughs> yes, they just cut <laughs> in half. They're made from the same stuff from the same animal and so forth. Okay. They whittled and it so... from a bigger spoon. <laughs> with... <laughs> and so when they interact, they kind of screw with each other in ways that normal magic wouldn't. And it just, basically it makes Voldemort's wand backfire and like spit back out the last number of spells that it has done. The last number of spells that it has done are all killing curses. So like they're locked in this like Dragon Ball Z-esque like beam battle. Okay, um, here goes listeners. We're just going to talk about anime for a minute. <laughs> it's like at the end of the Cell Saga where like Gohan just went Super Saiyan 2 and he's trying to like hold back Cell and then his ghost dad shows up to help him defeat Cell. <laughs> it's literally that. That's what happens. Yep. Harry's ghost mom and dad show up. They Kamehameha Voldemort and let yes. Harry escape. So he goes and he takes Dedrick back home yep. to the wizard people. Yep. And when he gets back through, basically the first thing that happens is Mad-Eye Moody says, hey, let me talk to him. I'm the dark arts expert. He's got dark arts all over it. Mm-hmm. Let me talk to him. But in doing so, he blows his cover because he says something about, oh, well, when you were at the graveyard, that very classic literary trope of, I never said anything about a graveyard. Yeah, what you see coming. (laughs) Oh, it's telegraphed, yeah. Yeah, there is one moment I don't want to gloss over, and that is whenever Cedric's dad uh, realizes that his boy is dead. Yeah. That got an emotional reaction out of me, which I didn't expect. Uh, But it did. Um, it is a nice piece of physical acting, I think. That landed pretty well. I teared up, and like, I mm-hmm. don't really care much for these wizard movies, despite them being like <laughs> popcorn cinema. I have no lifelong sure. attachment to this franchise, but and this character has only been introduced in this movie, and yeah. he was done away with not in a particularly great fashion. It's just like murk. Accurate. But that moment between the father and son landed for me for whatever reason. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. So what we will learn after Moody tips himself to Harry is that Mad-Eye Moody is in fact Barty Crouch Jr. with a polymorph potion, polyjuice potion, I'm sorry. Yes. And has been for basically the entire movie. Yep. Uh, that I mean, the writing on the wall for that was, he was somebody. I don't know if that was just me or... If it right. was no. obvious for everyone, but it was very clear that it was either going to be him or the Russian guy, or it was going to be Crumb. Like, it was going to be one of yes. those three. I do recall it surprising me the first time I read it. So I don't know if it was telegraphed when I watched it because I knew it was coming, or if the film just made it more obvious. But, yeah, this has been Barty Crouch Jr. the whole time. Mm-hmm. He overpowered Mad-Eye, he put Harry's name in the cup, he turned the cup into a port key. he's been serving his master 
Voldemort honorably all along. He just gets sent back to Azkaban for his troubles. Yep, which worked out so well the first time. Yep. For being an impenetrable and inescapable prison, Azkaban has lost itself a number <laughs> of prisoners. We're two for two now uh, in these <laughs> yeah. movies where we hear that Azkaban is inescapable. A prisoner gets out. And that's kind of it. We're going to wrap it up with Dumbledore telling the school what happened. The Ministry of Magic is not pleased with this. They want him to keep the return of Voldemort under his hat because they still aren't convinced that it's real. Mm-hmm. And he does have a chat with Harry. And I, I don't know to what level he gets any credit for this, but he does have a chat with Harry where he apologizes to him saying, you know, there was a lot more danger in this than I realized there was going to be. Um, and I did you dirty, basically. I I should have been able to see this and stop this, and I didn't. Something to that effect, yes. I don't know, at least for me, I it did not come off as particularly sincere, but at yeah. least it's in there. I don't know if it's he should be saying it or why he's saying it. Like, you're just kind of, okay, the old man's saying some things, and I guess we're supposed to listen because right. he's Grandpa Wizard and we're supposed to love him. This is also where he gives us the explanation of Priori Incantatum, or the reverse spell effect that we explained earlier. Puts a little bit of a bow on the other two magic schools who are going home. It kind of really fast forwards through the very end of the school year. And that's it. The movie's out. For better or worse, this is obviously where the meta plot starts really taking a front seat. Mm-hmm. And also where the books really no longer are ending on optimistic notes. Oh, good. <laughs> I like me a bummer ending. <laughs> Any final thoughts before we move on to rank this boy? I don't think so. We spent a lot of time tearing apart like all the little things that we didn't enjoy in this movie this time around or things that didn't necessarily like track uh for us. Right. But I did enjoy this movie. I did have a good time watching this movie. There's a lot to like about this movie. <laughs> Definitely. There's a lot of fun to be had. There's a lot of just cool lore being explored, even if it came from not a great person. And it's worth noting, too, I think, that we're really seeing, especially the trio, Mm -hmm. come into their own as young actors. And not that they haven't been good previously, but yeah, they're definitely, you can see the improvement in their performance. And I think that's cool, too. I guess we just need to rank these now? Yeah. Yeah. And astoundingly, I thought this might be one where we pivoted a little, but it looks like we put it in the same place again. We are still surprisingly in lockstep for somebody who has ostensibly grown up with this thing happening around them and somebody who has had no prior interaction (laughs) with it whatsoever. (laughs) This is number two for me so far. Azkaban is still my favorite. Then Goblet of Fire, Chamber of Secrets, Sorcerer's Stone. And I am 100% in lockstep with you there. I think (laughs) that they have almost universally gotten better as we've went along, except for this one was just like it was a step down from that third movie, which was really tightly interwoven, really well paced. It's not that it didn't stumble in parts. It just it stumbled more efficiently than these other films did. Okay. I know this is sort of a redundant question, given that we're on film four. Mm -hmm. 
of a well-known franchise, but where are we going next? Next up, we are going to be covering Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. The Third One Sucks is a Retrograde Orbit radio production. If you like the show, make sure to rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps us out. Follow us on Twitter at the Third One Sucks or email us at thethirdonesucks at gmail.com where we can chat about episodes and take your suggestions on what you would like us to cover in the future. That's the, the number three, rd1sucks at gmail.com. If you aren't already tired of our voices, you can check out our other projects, including Mindful Self-Indulgence, where Dan interviews folks about the media that has most impacted their lives, and Mount Olympus, where Mark and a panel of friends watches and reviews the Hercules and Xena television franchises, along with the rest of the Retrograde Orbit Radio family of podcasts at retrogradeorbitradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in the sequel.